Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Sharon Salzberg has the dubious distinction, I guess, of uh, being the only person to to have been on this podcast four times. But uh, she deserves it because she is a pioneer. Uh, she is one of the people who helped bring meditation uh, to the United States back in the 70s uh, after spending some time in India. Uh, if you want to learn more about her uh, at points wrenching backstory, you should go back and check out episode eight where we really go through all of that. But the reason why we're bringing her back on is she's got a new book called Real Love. You'll hear me admit this early on in the interview because I've been so deep in my own uh, writing for my own book that's coming out at New Year's. I've I've been a bad boy, a bad friend, uh, and, and only read half of Real Love, which is excellent as everything she's written has been, but I didn't get to read all of it, so I, I admit that to her, and she, characteristically, for somebody who wrote a book about love, was quite understanding about it. But this, this book is really a way to redefine what love is as a skill or an ability. A lot of us think, and I definitely fell into this trap, that we have a certain amount of compassion and patience, and, and we're kind of stuck with that. It's the, our factory settings. But in fact, you, you can work on this. And uh, Sharon is the foremost expert, I would argue, in the West, or at least one of them, in the skill of what's known as loving kindness or compassion meditation. So here she is, one of my favorite people, Sharon Salzberg. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I've read half of this excellent book, and then I got sucked into writing my own book, Full disclosure from the jump. But I know you won't get mad at me because you're the uh, avatar of loving kindness. Shucks. I guess I can't get mad ever, <laughs> ever, ever. Yeah. How does that ever like is that an issue with your friends and people you're really close with that you, you know, as the the uh, loving kindness proponent that you are, that you can't like just be pissed off once in a while? It sort of does come up. Or once I was having a conversation with a friend on the phone and we were being a little bit like unkind about somebody and then I thought better of it. I thought this doesn't feel good and I said, well, you know, uh, I don't feel so good about the the tone of this conversation and my friend said, have you been reading your own book? (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, speaking of book, I should say um, uh, we have interviewed you before. You're the most frequent guest on this podcast. Um, So we're not going to get into your personal story as much on this podcast, but you have a new book called Real Love and it follows on your previous books, Real Happiness, Real Happiness at Work, and also your really, from my point of view, seminal book, Love and Kindness, early, early on, which I have made this joke before, but when I was reading it on airplanes, I used to cover it up like it was a penthouse because I didn't want anybody <laughs> to see that I was reading a book called Love and Kindness. Um, so let's just start with the title. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, as as you know, I didn't I don't choose the titles of my, of my books that often. Um, I was trying to make a distinction between the love as a commodity, you know, which is kind of the common thought. And it was very much, I th- realized, my thought. Um, I had a, a very profound experience doing loving kindness meditation intensively in Burma. And I think like many profound experiences, it may not sound like much in words, but it made a big difference for me. And up until that moment in time, I did think of love as like a commodity, which meant it was it was like a package in someone else's hands. It was a thing. And a certain kind of feeling tone, a certain range of emotion. And it was almost like if the UPS person was standing on my doorstep and changed their minds, I'd have no love in my life. You know, I'd be completely bereft. And so what I saw in Burma was love as a capacity, as an ability within me, as a potential within me that other people or situations could certainly awaken and enliven or threaten, but it was mine. It was within me. And so that feeling of being completely dependent on an external source really did evaporate. So can we define what you mean by loving kindness or metta, M-E-T-T-A, mm-hmm. which is an ancient Pali word? Yes. I think both for loving kindness and for these days for love, I, I'm talking about a profound sense of connection, like a, a complete sense of presence and connection. It's not necessarily an emotion. Uh, you know, that that feeling tone that we look for and long for and and invest in for love, I think, is a particular manifestation. But love itself is not the uh, commitment. It's not the structure that a relationship may take. And it may not be that emotional. I feel like if I'm 
meeting a stranger and I'm completely present. And I, I in a way, find some of myself in them or I, I have that sense of what in my youth we used to call grokking, you know, like of, of actually feeling into, of connecting to. Um, that's love. The, but there is a practice too. And when you say you went on a, a meta or loving kindness yeah. retreat, there's a there's a practice that goes along with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of loving kindness or love, probably the two greatest controversies I find is first what you were talking about: the idea that it's a weakness, that it's sentimental, it's kind of squishy, uh, rather than a strength or a force. And the other, it's so peculiar to us: the idea that this can be trained. You know, uh, I don't know if we tend to think of love and compassion and things like that as a gift and you either got it or you don't or we think it is a spontaneous emotional eruption or something. But, uh, you know, from the point of, of Buddhist psychology, certainly it absolutely can be trained because attention can be trained. That's what meditation is. And, and that sense of connection is based on paying attention differently. You know, not being so fragmented, not thinking about your email, for example, but really being fully present, being open, not being so burdened by assumption. You know, I know all about that person. I don't need to listen. Or that person, that other person told me about this person. Or that kind of person is not my kind of person or or whatever it is. You know, there's so many filters and so many distortions to our perception. So if we clear away some of those and we're open and we're interested that is the the nature of the loving response. So, but but is is all that love is is fully paying attention? It's not just fully paying attention. It also uh, involves what we pay attention to. You know, we may be fixated on, for example, with ourselves, what's wrong, um, the stupid thing we said this morning, how we could have said that much better, uh, the way we fail. Uh, so it's a broader, more inclusive sense of who we are, and it also it very much involves. Uh, who we pay attention to, who we discount, who doesn't matter, um, who we objectify. And it involves a, a kind of quality of attention that is it's kind of beneficent. It's like, okay, what if we were on the same side? I see you're a mess, you know, and I don't really like you uh, or your behavior, but what if my wish wasn't so much that you be reduced to nothing but that you see the error of your ways or that you, you know, it's realizing that the kinds of mind states or forces or habits that probably led to your being such a jerk can lead to me being such a jerk and that that's really um, – that's a burden, you know, to be living under the uh, the sway of those states. So when you talk about love, you're not just talking about romantic love or even parental love. It's much broader. It, it's much broader and it, it manifests in all these different ways and I think it does manifest in all these different ways. A uh, common question – uh, that people ask um, was, was things like, you know, I want to be like the Dalai Lama, but I really kind of like my husband. <laughs> like, do I have to love everybody the way I love my husband? And we don't. You know, it, it's like we have very particular relationships with particular people or beings. Um, I say beings because, uh, well, you have cats, right? Mm -hmm. But the first group, I did a lot of groups with people for this book to try to hear their stories and learned from them. The very first group, this guy raised his hands and he said, most people think of a good relationship as 50-50. My dog and I, were 100-100. <laughs> and I got all the way, like two years later, I was finishing the book. I was in England about to sit a retreat and I was about to press send and I thought, did that story make it all the way through? And I hadn't, so I put it back in and I pressed send. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but it is a skill when yeah. you said and an ability or um yeah but can you just walk us through how one generates that through meditation yeah I and mean, that that is the attention training it's like first of all we realize in, in general our attention is pretty scattered we're all over the place you know you meet someone at a party you're not really listening to them or looking at them most likely you're thinking about the email you need to write or the people you'd rather be talking about and you you recognize that and you learn to gather your attention and then you lose it and you gather your attention um, even right there in the example I just used is a tremendous kind of love for oneself and compassion for oneself because you sit down to meditate. Let's say you're just doing something like being with the breath. It's so unlikely. It's 9,000 breaths before your mind wanders. Usually it's one you know, or two. So how do you speak to yourself when you realize that? You know, Do you then digress into another 45 minutes of judging yourself and emerge like feeling beaten up and so demoralized? Or can you say, 
blew it. Let me start over, right, with some compassion for yourself. So uh, right there, there's there's a kind of training that leads to the sense of love. And then being able to see those assumptions, you know, not being caught by them. And, you know, that person is all bad and always will be, or I'm all bad and I always will be. Uh, being able to listen more deeply. Um, having There's a kind of vitality, I think, that comes from mindfulness where we're not so lost in categories and, and on all these assumptions. And uh, there's something very fresh and alive and actually in that, that sense of being, uh, being with ourselves in a different way or being with others in a different way. And this is all training. You know, that sounds cold, but it's just it's realizing that's not how I grew up. You know, that's not what I'm used to. And, and it's a process that uh, we can do that. We can, we can be different. But there's mindfulness meditation where you watch your breath coming in and out usually. Um, but then there's metta, M-E-T-T-A, or loving kindness meditation. Um, what is that like? Uh, it is a different technique. It's a different method. They're very supportive of one another, but they're distinct. Um, we say we say mindfulness meditation allows us to see the difference between our direct experience and the story we weave around it, and then we have a choice: do I want to go forth with that story, or do I want to let it go? Um, whereas loving kindness meditation will change our default story. So, if the story that tends to rush in right away is one of our unworthiness, or about fear of others, or a sense of alienation. What will happen over time is that the story becomes one of connection and that the kind of almost calcified, rigid sense of self and other and us and them begins to dissolve. And there's a much more profound sense of interconnection. Um, it's done differently, you know, than, uh, say, the breath, where we actually choose certain phrases that are the centering point for the awareness, and the phrases become the conduit for paying attention differently. You know, so I think of a friend, and rather than thinking about how they need to change jobs and, you know, have a perfect piece of advice for them, I wish them well. Like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, or whatever those phrases are. It's considered a practice of generosity, because uh, it's like generosity of the spirit. It's just offering, like, you know, may things work out for you. May, may you have peace. May you have um, a sense of love in your life. Well, we should say that you teach a, an excellent introduction to this kind of meditation on the 10% Happier app, of, uh, and you are one of the guiding teachers on the app and basically one of the masterminds behind the whole darn thing. Uh, but I, just from a personal standpoint, I've been doing on your direction – Meta meditation, notwithstanding my deep uh, aversion to anything syrupy, for about eight years now. Um, how do I know if it's working? You know, I mean, uh, uh, how do I? I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm any nicer, and if I am nicer, maybe it's because I married well, or I, you know, I have a kid now, and that makes everybody a little bit softer, or I'm, I'm older, and I don't know. You sometimes you mellow as you get older. How do I know it's this thing you're having me do, where I picture people and send them good vibes? Well, I mean, I would never claim singular credit for, you know, <laughs> such a vast amount of happiness in your life, way more than 10%, I bet. But I I think it is a great question because I think we do want to know. You know, it's crazy to think we're just going to do something endlessly without a sense of accomplishment. But I wouldn't ever counsel somebody to look at the actual formal period of practice each day, however long that is. But look at your life. You know, look at your marriage. Look at your relationship. Look at how you are with your kid who's, what, two or something? Two, yes, yes. Yeah, so he's saying no or whatever kids do with yeah, two. A lot like, more than no. Yeah. You know, so uh, which is the point. You know, we, we don't practice to become great meditators. This we morning, practice. by the way, he pointed to the other side of the room and told me, Daddy, go sit over there. Whoa. Yeah, that's, that's the Had level Daddy been on. naughty? <laughs> I was trying so to eat cute. his bagel. Well, there you go. <laughs> I interrupted you. Sorry. No, 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 no. That's quite all right. Um, you know, we, we practice to have a different kind of life, and so that's the place to look. And people often feel frustrated by that. They think they should have, like, a great breakthrough experience while sitting and being engulfed in this warm and blissful feeling. But maybe they're just, you know, better with themselves when they make a mistake. They're more resilient. They can They can come back sooner. Maybe they're different with their kid or their partner or their colleague or something like that. And you will be. 
uh, and that's the place to look. But I might be different with my my colleague or kid, though, for the, some of the other reasons that I listed before. It's just hard to for me to identify what's the source of. I think I am calmer and more compassionate than I used to be. I don't know if I could quantify that, but I, I it's hard for me to know what the contributing factors are. Well, I mean, I think. There's the art of life where we just do these different things and it's it's like art. And then there's the science where you can stop doing it and see what happens, you know. It's like if you're allergic to a food and you're trying to figure out what it is, you eliminate, you know, all these other foods. And then so you if I stop doing meta and, and meta yeah. and start to see what happened to my attitude. Yeah. I'd give it six weeks. See really? What happens. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. But, but <laughs> I think that's I, – I, I think you're right. Yeah. I start every sit with just – May all beings be free from suffering, which is yeah. I can't even believe I'm saying that. So it's so embarrassing when I say it out loud. <laughs> but it actually it, it feels pretty good. It just yeah. connects you to something larger. People have this desire to get out of their own heads. And I mean, you hear that all the time. Uh, I mean, that I find is a really good. Sometimes I have to do it three or four times before I connect to the to the sentiment at all. Um, but there is a kind of spaciousness that can uh be invited when you do that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the reasons I like this book title is actually I think that is what we actually want. We want a sense of of love. We want a sense of connection. Uh, that's why, you know, nobody who's dying says, I'm like so glad that I um, sold that many books, you know, or whatever, unless it's in the context of I touched that many people. I'm so glad my work, my life, you know, had some meaning for others, but uh, not in in the sense of like, look what I racked up. You know, like, where does it go? Uh, we want we want connection. I think most profoundly. So, what did you learn in the course of this? Because you've written about love before, love and kindness, the book that came out a couple decades ago, and and uh, you've written about compassion meditation within the context of real happiness and real happiness at work. So, what's new and different about this book? Well, that's kind of two questions. You can take them at your at your leisure. What's new and different about this book, and what did you learn? I think one of the things that's new and different is because I'm new and different, you know, because I've been learning all all along, and I certainly learned a lot from talking to all these people about this specific topic. I'm, I really saw, uh, for one thing, the difference between liking somebody and loving all beings. I, I saw what I really believe as kind of the bottom line of love as a power in, in a deeper and kind of a new way. Um, there's a story that I tell that I, I've rarely, rarely ever told, but is about spending time with this man, Miles Horton, who founded this school called Highlander Folk School. Uh, at the time, it was called that, um, in, in Tennessee, which was kind of a training school for a lot of civil rights workers. And uh, later, early environmental workers and uh, like Rosa Parks was there before she, you know, stayed on the bus seat and stuff like that. And so um, it just happened that we spent a day together for some reason. And uh, I said to him, knowing some of the history of the school and, you know, the duress being in the South, it being an integrated facility and the uh, pressure and the lawsuits and, and the threats and all that, I said, what do you do? You must do something to like get a break and not be lost in fear and stuff like that. And he said, well, I sit and look at the mountains. I just sit outside in Tennessee and look at the mountains. It's meditating. Yeah. And then I said, then we talked about loving kindness meditation because it's so much my thing. And and he said, oh, Marty, Martin Luther King Jr. He said, Marty used to say to me all the time, you've got to love everybody. And I'd say, no, I don't. I only have to love the people who deserve to be loved. And he would laugh and he'd say, nope, you got to love everybody. And I realized, me, I realized that when I uh, the few times I have told that story, almost always somebody raises their hand and says something like, uh, well, look what happened to him. He got assassinated, as though there were cause and effect there. Mm. You know, as though if he'd been vicious and hateful and whatever, he would have been safe. Um, and while I've always kind of known that, that really hit home for me in a very different way when I saw how we... Uh, it's almost like a degradation of the sense of love and, and what it could be and really what's become of us, you know, and um, and how atomized people are, how lonely people feel uh, in this country, certainly, and how powerless we feel and how when we do talk about power and uh, change, love doesn't often figure in the conversation, and I think it really should. When you say love is a power, what do you mean? 
I mean, I think people do things motivated by love uh, more, uh, certainly more strongly sometimes and more successfully than motivated by hate. And we think, you know, because outrage may be the way many people wake up, like, ooh, look at that, you know, and it may be a, a force for seeking change to begin with. Um, I think love is actually the force that keeps us going. And, um, you know, when I think about uh, the music during the civil rights uh, era, for example, you know, people were connecting to something larger, right, something that kept them going. It wasn't just a, a denunciation of, like, the sheriff's actions or something like that or the town council that um, was maintaining segregation. They weren't reciting the litany of the unfair laws. They were connecting to something much bigger, and that's like a state of love. I, I sometimes worry, though, that talking about love is hard because it's easy for it to just get lost in empty platitudes. You know, all we need is love and, and you know, great song. But does it, you know, land? I know. Uh, I'm I, looking back over my work, you know, my 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 writing. Um, I realized that in a funny way, something I seem to have been seeking to do is to redeem words. It's like when I wrote the book Faith, of all things, you know, and like even my friends were saying, what are you on about? You know, like, why do that? Because for so many people, the word meant being silenced and not being able to ask questions and being sort of reduced um, in terms of your self-respect and, and just taking for you know granted what someone else says is true. And, and I realized I wanted to help redeem the word because redeeming the word means redeeming the power of it, you know, and being able to use it differently. And, and I just thought the other day, I thought, ooh, I think I'm doing the same thing for love because, of course, it's, it's used, you know, I love my uh, trail mix, you know, I love... Uh, I love my sublet, you know, yeah. which I actually yeah. do. Uh, but it's you know, a good sublet. I've been there. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, but uh, and if I lost it, I would be very sad. But you know, is that sort of the biggest expression of love I could get? I don't think so. So, do you love everybody? Uh, sometimes I do, actually. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes I do. I kind of do. <laughs> I... <laughs> Unpack that. I kind of do. <laughs> no, I, uh, let me let me rephrase it. Sometimes I do. What do you mean by that? I, I think there are moments when I I feel um, I feel the interconnectedness of all of us, and even if I don't like some people, and I feel uh, very oppositional to kind of their actions and want to seek change or whatever, I still feel a kind of poignancy. You know, like I feel it in different ways. I feel like. Um, I think as human beings, we are capable of some real greatness, each of us, in terms of love and connection and wisdom and so on. And I think there's a poignancy in, in having a really limited view of what happiness is and like power over others or vengefulness or something like that. I don't think those things really make us happy, except in a very temporal sense, you know. And to see people devote their lives to it, I think it's kind of poignant. Um, I think that uh, I was teaching with Sylvia Borstein and she kind of drove me crazy at one point because she kept saying everyone's just doing the best they can and I think no they're not you know but I actually do think if they could do better they would do better I think it's absolutely true they're doing yeah. the best they can they're we may not agree on what their interpretation of best is or what the most yeah. skillful way to do your best is but Everybody's. I, I agree with that. Yeah, no, she was right. She was definitely right. You know, for all my my reaction initially it was like, well, they are. I mean, if they could do better, they would do better. Yeah. You know, including me. You know. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, 
families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So when you say sometimes I love everyone, does that mean sometimes through the practice that you described earlier of sending mm-hmm. good, good well wishes to all beings, which is usually the last move in a in a cycle mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. meta meditation where you uh, try to uh, what's the word I'm looking for generate some sort of Im- imagery of all beings, um, you know, like the earth or the universe or something like that, and just send out whatever you got. Um, in those moments, you feel like, or do you feel like in your everyday walking around life, you uh, you can generate a love for everybody? Um, they're not disconnected. I think it's, but I think I really lay it all at the practice. It's because I do the practice that at times when I'm you know walking around or I'm just encountering a clerk in the supermarket or um, hearing about somebody you know in this world. Um, that I feel it it really does happen in that way. And I think, you know, uh, it's not everyone's job to, um, there's a funny way of saying it, but, you know, if you've been really harmed by somebody, I don't think your uh, first obligation is to try to generate compassion for them. You know, more likely it's to generate compassion for yourself and, and uh, you know, find your way. But I think that, those people who devote themselves and devote their life energy to uh, getting back at somebody, for example, or being defined by the actions of others in some way, they suffer, you know, and I suffer or any of us suffer in that in that position, and we don't need to stay there. So how, how do you deal with that psychologically? If there's somebody out there who you think has directly harmed you or is just a noxious presence in the world, how do you generate loving kindness for them? Um. It's like a form of play, you know, like uh, first you have to really check the degree of loving kindness for yourself because it's not a matter of giving up or giving in uh, ever. You also have to check your understanding because the um, generation of loving kindness for someone doesn't dictate a certain kind of action, which is another thing people are very afraid of, that I'm going to have to give them money. I'm going to have to say yes. I'm going to have to uh, not have a strong boundary or... I'm going to have to give up competing or whatever it is. And uh, the loving kindness doesn't, the the cultivation of loving kindness doesn't dictate the action. It reforges the motivation for action. But you might decide in a certain situation that a real kind of tough love is what's best called for, or very fierce compassion. Um, that's like discernment, you know, that's looking at the situation. Um, that's important, you know, even to remind yourself again and again. This doesn't mean I have to have Thanksgiving dinner with them. You know, this doesn't mean uh, whatever. And um, and it's it's a form of play. Like some in the Buddhist text, they say uh, with this difficult person, is there a way you can imagine them? Imagine them being an infant, being so helpless and subject to the actions of those around them. Imagine them dying. Um, you know, not like with glee, but, you know, look at this. We carry on in this life and we hold grudges and we get consumed with whatever. And look at that. In the end, we all have to let go of everything. You know, so you kind of use active imagination to picture this person. Um, so what happens then? And remember, you're not looking for these engulfing waves of feeling. You're looking for some kind of sense of connection. Our lives are really tied together. And uh, we extrapolate from that, you know, is there a way you can imagine this person? And people say all kinds of things like, you know, my difficult person was on this island and there was no boat. They had plenty of food, you know, they weren't going to starve to death. They were fine, but they couldn't reach me. And then, you know what? Then I could do it. You talked about competing. Uh, And this is something I always come back to with you because I'm in a competitive job. 
not only a competitive job, but I have an app in a competitive space. Well, we have an app in a competitive space where we're competing against other apps, and I publish books, as do you, in a competitive marketplace. And uh, one of the most challenging concepts that comes out of Buddhism, but you talk about it quite a bit, is is mudita, M-U-D-I-T-A, which is defined as sympathetic joy, I mean, taking pleasure in the successes or happiness of others. Uh, how would one employ mudita uh, uh, when one has a competitive job? I would start like well before mudita, you know, because actually if, of those four qualities that are usually talked about together of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, joining the happiness of others, and then equanimity or balance of mind. These are the four capacities that are often talked about. The classical Buddhist, they call them heaven, divine abodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to make too much of that. I'm not a big uh, divine uh, abode you, guy. No, <laughs> but 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 again, they are compassion, which is um, be, being able to the, the desire to help people who are in, in in need or suffering. Loving kindness, which is just sort of uh, love and well wishing for for people. Uh, uh, equanimity, which is a balance of mind in the face of everything, um, and mudita, which, which is again sympathetic joy. So, but, right. but a lot of people think mudita is the hardest. Yes, a lot of people will. Te- a lot of teachers will say mudita is the hardest. Hard doesn't mean impossible, but it's hard. One of the things with with sympathetic joy practice is that we we usually take a step back and we see what makes it so hard, because uh, those assumptions or those concepts are very interesting to look at. Um, even though there is, you know, there is a kind of market share, there is a certain competition. Sometimes uh, we go way beyond that, as though happiness itself were a limited commodity in this world, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for me. Or, or we fall into this kind of like I have nothing and I will forever, and you, you have everything and you will forever. Well, certainly nothing is forever. So that's one problem. And it's so unlikely we have absolutely nothing. You know, maybe my book did not uh, start out as number one in the New York Times bestseller list. Maybe somebody came up to me and said, uh, your book saved my life. And why isn't that enough in that moment? You know, and what if it's never enough? Um, what, what does that mean about our values or our life? You know, so uh, we just take a look at all of these things. And, and sometimes there's a kind of, competition or there's this feeling of resentment, which is completely irrational, like as though the New York Times truck was running around looking for a bestseller, and they had my address, and they came, they were heading right to my neighborhood, and they were close there to there, and you hijacked it, <laughs> you know, and and you took it away, and therefore your book got on, and mine didn't, and uh, if your book had not, mine would have. Whereas really there's not that kind of correlation at all, right? And we feel so undone by that, like we've been ripped off, you know, we've been betrayed. But it's just life. And and so we look at all those assumptions, you know, because they do limit us and they, they make us so unhappy and uh, they fly in the face of reality. You know, reality is that so many conditions come together in any moment for anything to arise. Some we can affect, some we can't. Uh, and that's just the nature of things. And And... It, it's, you know, it's so lonely and it's so relentless. That's the sense of comparison, um, because it it has no natural end. You know, you can compare yourself endlessly to everyone and there's some upstart new network, and you know, what about them? And, and then they're pioneering. That's really scary, you know. And then, uh, oh no, now we're you know now there's, you know, all the others, and then it just goes on and on and on and on. And so out of compassion for oneself, you think, I don't want to just live that way. But I don't think the consequences of giving that up are losing your edge or the sense of wanting to be excellent at what you do and wanting to be recognized. I mean, we're just human beings. We want to be recognized, but how much do we want to be recognized? And, you know, somebody told me a story the other day of um, a friend of theirs who was in the front row at some game, I don't know, basketball or something like that. And uh, the front row was the one that was uh, most visible on TV. And some like massive celebrities sitting in the second row kept saying, I need to change seats with you because no one's going to see me. You know, I'm gonna, it's going to be like a downfall for me. And I thought, really? 
you know, really? Like, that's what I mean by poignancy, you know, because it's like, when does that end and how does it end? And, you know, what happens when? When does it end? When does it end? I mean, it doesn't, that, that process only ends when we see the mind state for what it is and we say, I'm not going there. What about love in the age of political polarization? You know, we are in a country where we can't even agree on the basic facts. Do you have any hope that love can can swoop in and, uh, if not save the day, at least improve it? I think it can improve it. <laughs> I think it has to improve it. I, and that's part of what I've always wanted. I've always wanted love to be part of these conversations. Yeah, but do you really think that's going to happen? Uh, I don't think it's going to be easy. I think we need to take like 30 steps back there, you know, and really uh, not only talk to one another. Talk to one another doesn't mean agree with one another. I mean, I'm not uh, somebody who really believes in uh, moral relativism, for example, you know. Um, I think there are actions and and beliefs that are extremely harmful. And uh, it's not just a question of mutual respect, you know. It's it's a question of facts or or looking at at the real consequences of certain certain kinds of choices or certain kinds of actions. but the sort of basic sense of otherness and belittling of someone else has got to stop. And uh, maybe it has to stop with us, you know, with with any one of us and and go on from there rather than hoping for this kind of widespread. What do you do when you get strong feelings about the current political situation? Um, I try to find a different – first, I try to find a different kind of balance. Um, I uh, monitor my uh, – Input. You mean you know, how much Twitter you're consuming? No, Twitter is Twitter is my my bottom line. <laughs> I'm always on Twitter, but uh, yeah, I know. How do you do that? <laughs> no, I'm not always on Twitter. You're though. on Twitter quite a bit, though. I'm on Twitter a little bit. Actually, tweet Twitter is good for me because it's so brief, and I only have to pursue something at greater depth if I want to, instead of having it appear in front of me. So. Um, and then there's Facebook, which I also do. That's why I know he's on Twitter because I'm on Facebook. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I try to have a certain perspective. I think outrage and anguish and all of that are, you know, understandable feelings. And I think the most important thing is if I feel them to take some action, like a kind of loving action. Like I am a as you may know, maybe we talked about it before, I'm extremely passionate about people voting. And it's not partisan. It's not, you know, suggesting who somebody should vote for. But I think that sense of participation is as close to the Dharma um, as an action can be. It's like everybody has innate dignity. Everybody has a right to a voice and a point of view. They have the right to express that. The right to express it is equal. Um and thwarting that or stopping that is really demeaning somebody's basic humanity. I think that's completely wrong. And so, you know, rather than freaking out and, and retweeting or, you know, uh, just carrying on and, and being in a really upset state, I think it's time to do something. You know, let's see about registering people to vote. I think that's my thing. Great advice because a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum feel hopelessness and helplessness, um, especially if if the power of of their side of the argument is ebbing at that particular moment and actually just volunteering and doing something and you've you've made this point before on this uh, show is a great antidote to mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. back to real love the art of mindful connection just talk, talk me through the dna of the book how did you come up with this idea why did you want to do this book why now and then how what was the process of writing it like and and, and gathering your editorial eggs for the basket uh-huh um, I think why now is, is partly that passion I've had for a long time, like can't love be part of this conversation too? And how about this conversation too? And um, and seeing, you know, my own development. I'm, Loving Kindness was my first book. It came out in 1995. And when I started working on Loving Kindness, I didn't even have a computer. You know, cutting and pasting meant getting a pair of scissors, <laughs> literally, and, you know, cutting out the paragraph and moving it up and down the page and, getting a roll of scotch tape and then taping it where you wanted it to go. Uh, I did have a computer before the end. Um, I tell that story in the book, actually, about the 
visit to the Insight Meditation Society of a 94-year-old Sri Lankan monk who mentioned he was learning how to use a computer. And I thought, if he can do it at 94, maybe I can too. Um, and so part of it is how much I've thought about it and learned about it and taught and learned from people. And uh, so I kind of wanted to go on and say, well, what about this? And um, I uh, have a, a very different sense of um, referencing, you know, like I, I think I, I quote James Baldwin more than the Buddha, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I mean, I, I love the Buddha, you know, and he's not a white male, in fact, but you know, I think that's kind of right um, for our time. So I, f- I think it's a very contemporary expression of some of those same ancient principles. And um, there's there was a whole process, you know, like uh, because there's no inherent structure. Like if I was doing loving kindness as a book, I have the structure of the meditation. You know, you start with yourself mm-hmm. and you move. And so I just really had to try to think deeply, okay, what do I see as the flow? And that was, the whole first section is about love for oneself and how that's not narcissism or selfishness, but really the cultivation of the kind of uh, inner wherewithal that will allow us to give and care and and so on. Um, This whole second section is love for another, whether that's a partner or a child, a parent, um, a pet, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and the third section is it, it actually there were two sections originally it became one it was it's sort of like love for all beings and love for life itself and so really the bigger picture and um, I saw how you know people were amazing they were they were so generous in giving me their stories and offering um, their life experience and and how many people uh are really struggling in in some way. At one point, my editor said to me, don't you know anybody whose partner doesn't have a disease? Mm -hmm. And I thought, and I thought, I guess not, you know, like, um, you know, and how I also saw and and wrote a little bit about sort of the breakdown of the normal mechanisms of community, like that book, Bowling Alone, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, and how people are really trying to create some sense of community and, I just did an interview about how an app can do that. Talk, talk, talk to me about uh, self-compassion, mm-hmm. love for oneself. We talked about mudita being tricky, but having love for oneself is really tricky for many people. Um, even though I'm a narcissistic newsman, it's I mean, especially hard for me in the con- in the process of meditation because when I get lost, you know which happens a lot, uh, as it does for anybody who actually sincerely tries to meditate, um, I'm, I'm all over myself. So hold forth to, the, to your heart's content. Um, I know we've joked about my distaste for the word heart. Um, to your heart's content um, about you know, self-compassion and what the value is and how we generate it. Well, you might be happy to know uh, we're looking at the book cover right now. I, one of the first things I said to them was, no hearts. Please, no hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I was really happy. Not, I mean, the first— It's a beautiful cover, actually. Thank you very much. The first iterations all had hearts. Oh. And interestingly enough, every heart was broken. Oh. And given huh. that the subtitle is The Art of Mindful Connection, I said to my publisher, your art department has a very interesting relationship with the word connection. Yeah. Everything's broken. Yeah. Look at that. Or maybe they a bunch of sad people in there. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe every art department. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. We'll maybe everybody see. in publishing. Maybe everybody. Everybody. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, that is the basic confusion, you know, that it's somehow being selfish to cultivate some love for oneself. But I I often think of, end quote, um, Barbara Fredrickson, in, who's a researcher at the University of North Carolina, who studies positive emotion. And even though I, I'm saying I don't really think of love, loving kindness, compassion as an emotion. That's the common way of referring to it. So I'd say positive states. Um, so states like compassion, gratitude, and so on. And, and her theory uh, is called the broaden and build theory, that first of all, when we cultivate these states, our perspective broadens. Like our there's a sense of expansiveness and openness. And um, that makes sense because when I think about the opposite, like fear and anger and greed and so on, 
when we are lost in those states, the world collapses, right? We get tunnel vision and we have no sense of options and we feel caught, you know, we're just in this vise. And so it makes sense that the opposite would just like open us up. So that's the first consequence of cultivating these states. And then uh, the second part of the theory is build. So it's about building inner resource, not feeling so like overcome and tenuous and fatigued and all those things. We, You know, you have a sense of wherewithal inside. So um, that's really, those are all positive things, not only for ourselves, like to feel better, but as we manifest in the world. It's like if your kid needs something and you're exhausted and you're just like, you can't bear it, you know, it's not that easy to get there. Whereas if you have more of the sense of wherewithal inside, it is much easier to to really get there. And so that's what it's about. You know, it's not about being selfish and self-preoccupied and pleased with yourself, you know, uh, but building this sense of, of inner, certainly sufficiency and maybe abundance. And when, I, when we did, did this cross-country meditation tour not long ago, um, one of the the whole idea was we were going to sort of systematically taxonomize and tackle the various impediments to meditation. And one of the big ones that we hit, and this was a big one for my wife, interestingly, is the idea that meditation generally is self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for my wife, who's a doctor and a mom, and uh, uh, she really her, – her whole mindset is of helping other people. And the idea of doing something for herself was – she really struggled with it. Yeah. Um, what do you say to folks who who struggle with this? Uh, that I understand the struggle, and and that um, that I find it kind of ironic, you know, that if any of us were told, "Here's this thing: if you did it for twenty minutes a day, it'd really help your friend," we do it. But the idea that it'll really help us, it, it just feels wrong. But how do we keep on helping our friend? You know, it's like even though it's such a terrible cliche at this point. It's such a great example, you know, if you're on the airplane and the, the oxygen mass descent, put your own on first. And um, it seems, I actually was talking to a writer friend and I said, you know, I can't even use that anymore. Everyone uses it and it, it's so cliched. And then she said, oh, I was just on an airplane and they made that announcement and the woman in the seat next to me said, I could never do that. I could never put my own mask on first. And I said, oh, maybe I can use it. You yeah. know, it's still like provocative. I and, use it too. I mean, it's yeah. great. I love it. It's also so it's relatable. Perfect. Yeah. I should have asked you this at the beginning, but, and I, and you may, I can't expect you to remember this all chapter and, chapter and verse, but could you give us a, a walkthrough of like what the science is showing us about the benefit, what, what the benefits may be of specifically loving kindness meditation, where you, again, you're sitting there and sending yourself and others and difficult people and everybody. Uh, good vibes. Uh, What is science telling us about what kind of effect this has on uh, physiology and behavior? Well, the science, you know, is is a lot newer than the mindfulness. And mindfulness itself is new. But uh, it's just more likely that a study will have been done on mindfulness than on loving kindness. But I understand that some of them are the same benefits. You know, there's certainly... Uh, a benefit in things like self-efficacy, you know, the feeling of confidence. And um, I was just reading about a study where it looked like loving kindness, you know, played a strong role, not surprisingly, in undermining bias, you mm. know, and assumptions. Because um, I always come back to that sense of assumption, you know, how do I see this other person that I'm with? Uh, there's There's a growing... Uh, they did this one study out of Emory University in the foster care system of Georgia using loving-kindness practice, and uh, that had also a lot to do with self-confidence and sense of belonging and and so on. Um, I think a lot of the physiological studies have had to do with vagal tone. And, uh, Is our vagus nerve V-A-G-U-S, not V-E-G-A-S? Which I guess connects the brain to the rest of our the being. Body, yeah. yeah. Um, and and that uh, just like a few minutes of loving kindness meditation seems to have a very profound effect on on vagal tone, which is a good thing. Um, and uh, also out of Richie Davidson's lab, they did some studies on uh, neuroeconomics, the effect of neuro- neurological changes on um, behavior, economic behavior, and 
they found uh, things like more acts of generosity coming from even just a few minutes of loving kindness. So last time, I think it was the last time I saw Richie Davidson, I was in Milwaukee. Who I should say is a preeminent neuroscientist, old, old friend of yours, and a previous guest on this podcast. Yes. Carry on, sorry. Uh, We were both in Milwaukee. He, of course, lives in in Madison, and uh, I was visiting, and uh, it was at a dinner, and and, uh, somebody said something about how difficult it was to maintain a meditation practice, and and Richie said that study, and he said it with a chuckle for me because I'm, you know, so identified with loving kindness practice. He, uh, he said studies had showed that only nine minutes of mindfulness, that nine minutes of mindfulness a day, and only seven minutes of loving kindness a day would change your brain. Hmm. So there you go. If you're looking for the faster route, um, Sharon, you're the best. Thank you. I love you. How about that? I love you, too. Thank you very much for coming on. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Um, where can people find out more about you? Uh, <laughs> I guess SharonSalzberg.com. We'll have it all. And also on Twitter and Facebook. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Perpetually. Perpetually. Not really, but kind of. Kind of. Thank you, Sharon. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.